0: if the experience of someone coming into a church for the first time doesn't feel wildly welcoming and nurturing and like they're seen and known, then the the teaching doesn't matter. Whatever programs you have beyond that don't matter. And especially in a world that's so divided right now, I think hospitality is an antidote to otherness. Sometimes sermons will change us, but sometimes having a dinner around the table with someone who's really different than you, who you really disagree with, changes us even more.
1: Welcome to The Calling. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Shauna Niequist. Morgan, what do you think about the spiritual gift of hospitality?
2: I think it's something that I am naturally good at.
1: Right, what, is it, what does it mean to you? What does hospitality mean to you?
2: To me, hospitality is best summed up in some of the things that my college friends would do that made me feel really loved, which was invite me over to their apartment, cook me food and just let me talk to them.
1: Yeah, that's good. I think sometimes it's overthought a little bit. and Sometimes it's underthought, right? Like,
2: There's definitely a level of intentionality that has to be there. But I think the intentionality came to me in terms of people figuring out what they were going to cook for me and then literally making it for me and serving it to me as opposed to straightening up their apartment to a certain standard
1: right so we talked to sean and nequist about exactly this question um but what it means to show hospitality not just in terms of hosting people but in terms of your professional life especially as a writer a communicator how do you make people feel as if they are with someone else and they are not alone they are cared for um we had a really good conversation and we talked a little bit about too about like how churches can be hospitable in deeper ways
2: One thing that I'm curious about is how messes can both make people feel less and more welcome.
1: What do you mean by that?
2: So a certain degree of formality makes it almost difficult to feel like something is home. You feel like you have to sit up really straight in the chair that you're sitting on. You can't really eat off the plate that they give you there's just something that makes it feel like there's a distance between you and the physical space that you're in.
1: Yeah. And I think it's definitely situational.
2: But at the same time, like most of us would not feel like thought of at all. Right. right if we went to stay in someone's guest bedroom, and there was yeah. like a pile of laundry on the on the bed or whatever. Yeah. You know,
1: there's a really good piece in the latest issue of Christianity Today magazine, Our called
2: June and or July August July, issue. July
1: August issue has the makers on the cover, but inside there's a uh, article called "The Simple Ministry of Bringing Cake." It's actually a review of a book by D. L. Mayfield called "Assimilate or Go Home." But it's a really good sort of exploration about uh, ideas related to hospitality and how we can reach out to people and sort of like reframing the idea of what missions work is. Right. And how we can do outreach.
2: Especially given D.L. Mayfield's context, working with immigrants and refugees, whom sometimes hospitality can feel like different culturally, you know, and how you can kind of do cross-cultural hospitality.
1: Shauna actually has a book out called Present Over Perfect it's uh it came out very recently and it's a really good reminder that exactly what you were saying like it's not super important to clean up you know that's not the point of hospitality
2: yeah that's not the point it's not it's less about like is cleaning up important or not but more about pri- how you prioritize what we think about when we think about hospitality
1: definitely and and committing to the things you love you know spending time doing the things you love and not just the things that feel urgent or super important
2: my dad's always told me I'm really good at having people over when stuff isn't exactly clean. Nice. I don't, I don't know, know if that's a compliment yeah, or
1: insult. I don't know what to make of that. So if you want to read that and a bunch of other really awesome articles, you can subscribe now to Christianity Today. We actually have a really good deal for you. If you go to orderct.com slash the calling, you'll get a year long subscription for our lowest rate available. That's $10. So do that now. You'll be supporting Christianity Today in general, but especially this podcast if you go to uh, orderct.com slash thecalling to subscribe. Okay, well, here's uh, our interview with the one and the only Nequist. You mentioned on your Twitter that you're a snack junkie. Is that the way you put I, it? I think
0: I said as a snack enthusiast. Snack enthusiast. Yes. And then yes. I
1: had a moment of heartbreak when I read your latest tweet. Was yeah. that suddenly you can't eat 30 types of food. Yeah, and it's like all the good ones.
0: Yeah. I'm what a-
1: Like what kind of good ones?
0: Well, so the ones I can't have are um, bread, corn, potatoes, tomatoes, milk, eggs, cheese. Uh, are you just
1: listing all the no, foods? I, yeah,
0: I know. Uh, and then like, even like a lot of like fruits and vegetables.
1: This is like a terrible practical nuts. joke.
0: Almost no nuts. I mean like basically I can have hummus. <laughs> And um, I don't know, like uh, peaches.
1: Did you ask your doctor to please give you a list of foods you can't eat? I actually
0: tried to make a list of that today. I was like looking at the list of things I can't eat, and I was like, "This is just bumming me out." Like, let's find things that are not on this list that I can have. So I'm like, "I can have raisins." (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, this is dark. (laughs) What are you gonna?
1: Can you have raisin bran? You can't have raisin bran. No,
0: because I can't have almost any grain. That is insane. I know. I know. I'm freaking out right now. I know it's not a good situation.
1: Okay, so what are you gonna do? So it's not
0: supposed to be forever. Theoretically, oh, okay. Theoretically, if I do it for a while, my body gets nice and strong and healthy, and then I can add most of those things back in.
1: How's your body supposed to get healthy? I, with just eating raisins. Eating just
0: like paper and sadness. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I haven't really, I haven't really started yet. Uh huh. So I might like from here go to like a like a deli and just get like tons of cheese and eat it on the way home and then start
1: tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Totally (laughs) start tomorrow. (laughs) That adds like a whole new meaning to the idea of like sadness food. Oh
0: yeah. Or like comfort food. There's like
1: a a new kind of self-destructive effect (laughs) to it.
0: Totally. That's
1: great. Uh, Well, my condolences. Thank you. Um, It's it's dark. (laughs) I'm here with Shauna Nequist and you're the author of a new book that's out. It's true. Or coming out. Yep. Depending on when this podcast airs, it's called Present Over Perfect leaving behind frantic for a simpler, more soulful way of living. Uh, This book I read, I did that thing guys do where they go, oh, my wife needs to read that (laughs) book. But then I became convinced that probably I need to read this book.
0: Well, I I mean i hear that a lot from husbands is that (laughs) the worst do you hate that no not at all it's nice what i actually hear sometimes is um husbands tell me like hey my wife made me read your book (laughs) and i'm like oh i'm sorry she's like you know he's like i just she said like you'll understand me or like you'll get you know so i'm like i'm sorry you were forced to read my book and they're like "No, no it's fine it's (laughs) fine (laughs) great
1: at the beginning of every podcast we ask the following question how would you describe or define your calling
0: I think there are some obvious ones that if you know a little bit about my life, you would probably assume, um, but I...
1: What would we assume?
0: Well, maybe writing uh, or mothering, yeah. or. Um, but uh, is, this is actually something I've done a fair amount of work on the last couple of years to really figure out kind of what, what what's the heart of it. Um, I think my calling is hospitality. Okay. And I think everything I do flows out of a desire to help people feel welcomed and known and loved. So I write in order to help people feel like they're not alone and they're not crazy. I speak so that people feel connected to someone and like they're not alone. Um, We gather people in our home constantly because I want people to have safe places to land in a world that doesn't have a lot of those. So I think even though my job, technically I'm a writer or whatever, everything I do is a function
1: of hospitality. What You said you've been working on that question for a while. How have you been working on it?
0: I've been trying to (laughs) distill down... um, yeah, kind of what's what's the heart of what motivates me, mm-hmm. um, especially because I, I really don't love public speaking, which is a funny thing considering it's a major part of my job. And so I had to kind of figure that out. Like, wait a minute. A lot of the other people who do public speaking for a job do it because they love it. Like they would say that's their calling. Yeah. Or even writing. I love writing, but I don't. It's not like I'm like, like my husband is like what I would call like a an extremely thoughtful idea oriented kind of content junkie. I'm totally not. You like writing, though? I do like it. Yeah. I hate it. Really? Yes. Oh, no, I hate speaking. I like writing.
1: I'm that guy. I'm like one of those people that says I I like having having written.
0: written. Totally. No. I um and some of it too is um I'm not I'm not a writer because I feel like I have like um content I want to get out there.
1: Mm. Like
0: I like sentences. I think it's fun. I like how language works. I'm like a full on word nerd, bookworm. I like the craft of writing.
1: And in some ways, the reason you're writing lowers the stakes a little bit like you're not trying to build an argument
0: totally you're not trying to change
1: someone's mind you're actually writing to a less hostile audience oh absolutely implicitly yeah which is not a
0: we always say especially online but even just in regular life like i'm a lover not a fighter Mm -hmm. i don't like to argue i think a lot of it is because i'm a pastor's kid and i just heard more criticism from christians about christians by the time I was like nine years old, I was just over it. So the, the idea that Christians are arguing about the way to do church or the way to do this or what we believe about the Bible or what I just I like, I just like zone out immediately. <laughs> I'm like, let's talk about dinner. Like I am not engaging in this.
1: Right. So when did you discover this calling?
0: I think for most people, and I I, th- I know everybody, there's a lot of different ways to define calling, but I would say it's In in my view, it's something that's been planted deep inside of you by God, and there's probably evidences of it all the way through going back even to your childhood. And so I would say hospitality, the desire to gather people and to make them feel seen and included. Um I've been doing that since I was little. I did it when I worked at a summer camp. I did it when I did student ministry. I've done it in our home and and, and um so it's been a thread all the way through my life. And then I had an experience a couple years ago where I think God used an experience I had to kind of return me to give me a vision for what I had lost along the way. So I experienced a, a way of hospitality maybe three summers ago that was so moving to me. It was so deeply welcoming and so intentional and so creative and so emotionally connected. And it, it reminded me wait, that's who I wanted to be not my life is not about deadlines and stages and whatever whatever i i have lost something important all, along the way and so the the journey of present over perfect is sort of winding my way back to become that person again that wildly inviting welcoming safe space creating person that i stopped being when i started working too much
1: can you think of like early experiences in your childhood where you were acting in this role without knowing it
0: yeah I mean I think I've I've always been uh the gatherer Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean I've been the boss but I've always been the one that brings people together and I have always loved feeding people like as silly as it sounds like that's something that God just put inside of me um and especially, I want people to feel comfortable. I want I want to create spaces. And, you know, I grew up in a ministry environment with people who are always working really, really hard, really public or really high stakes or really tiring or really. And my knee jerk was never to become one of them, but to create a safe space for them to come when they're finally done working. So um, we live within walking distance of our church right now. And one of my favorite things is that my friends who are working so hard to build and serve our church can come on the way home, can come to our house and they can be fed and they can sit and they can take their shoes off and they can just be like their unvarnished offstage tired selves. That's really valuable to me to create a space like that.
1: Do you just let people walk in your house at any Given time, is it like uh, an open door policy?
0: With some people, yeah, we joke about it. There are a lot of there are a lot of people in and out of our house. Our our house sees a lot of a lot of faces in and, and out of what's it. What's
1: your address?
0: <laughs> I'm going to draw a little map for you. anytime. You you just stop right over. Uh-huh.
1: What I like about this calling is it is so clearly applicable to both your professional and home life, which I think is something, especially women, but also men, certainly me, struggle with to apply their calling to where they are in any given situation. So
0: how do you define your calling?
1: Oh, gosh. So the other day someone asked me that question and I could not answer it. You're kidding. Which is such a hypocrisy. (laughs) I force people to answer it on the spot all the time. I think it would be something like, at least right now, to help make sure the right voices are heard in in any given moment.
0: Interesting. My husband would use the word like maybe curator for that. Like Uh you're not, you're not the person creating the art, but you're the person deciding which art goes up on the wall. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. He always talks about, there are certain people culturally that are elevating and amplifying the voices that they want to be heard in culture. Yeah. They're curators.
1: So I guess I could do that at home somehow.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Um
1: Atticus already is my one year old uh-huh. already is pretty good at letting his voice be heard. Really? That's, yeah. that's
0: not a problem for him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I feel I do feel like I don't know. I play that role in personal relationships, I guess. I don't know.
0: Are you the one who's always like recommending like you should read this book? You should mm-hmm. listen to this So, so you, Definitely. you're consuming a lot of content and yeah.
1: then sending it out to people. Definitely. Okay, so um, this is about you, though. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> this podcast. Yes. You mentioned you've been a pastor's kid. Mm-hmm. Your dad's name is?
0: Bill Hybels. Bill
1: Hybels. Mm-hmm. You, some people may have heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to know what you learned from that experience, since you have kids now, about raising children in a ministry environment.
0: Um, that's like one of my favorite questions to answer because are you being sarcastic? No, no, I'm not. I, know, as I'm for I real. was asking
1: it, I was like, "This has to be your least favorite question." No, I
0: actually I love answering it because I feel like my parents made a couple really intentional and pretty unusual, like pretty gutsy choices. Okay. that like changed everything for my brother and I. Wow. Um okay. So one thing that certainly was true for me, and now I observe for other pastors' kids, is everyone has expectations for the pastor's kid, even if the pastor himself or the pastor's wife or if the pastor's a woman, whatever, even if they think, no, we're not that kind of church. We don't have those kind of expectations here. People bring those and they put them on your kid without you even knowing. So my entire life, uh, if we're going to pray, someone's going to ask me to pray as though if you broke your arm and my dad was a doctor, I could set it, right? Like (laughs) there's no reason I'd be extra good at praying as a child. But People constantly and and they make a lot of comments about your behavior. Like, oh, better not tell your dad. Oh, what would your dad think about that? Oh, don't tell the elders. Like there's just this constant everybody's watching you as though the standards are higher for you. Even if your parents are working really hard to make that not true in your home, it's happening outside of your home all the time, Every everywhere you go that's connected to the church. People just have, and even, I'd say even more so people who aren't a part of the church. Like people who are totally not religious are like, oh, pastor's daughter, I've seen Footloose. You're like, no, that's <laughs> not, any, Well, it's not like that at all. <laughs> uh-huh. There's like, but there's this kind of this narrative about what pastor's kids are like. And so my parents were really clear with us and with our church and specifically, Specifically with our church elders, that we were not—we um, weren't representatives of his ministry. We weren't like tiny staff members. We did not have to live up to the expectations that would be put on a staff member. We were kids, and that was it. And there were times, especially in high school and college, where. I was a I was kind of a bad kid. And I know that they got a lot of questions about it. I know that people had questions about why doesn't she come to church? And what did I hear about her getting tr- in trouble at her college and da, 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 all that stuff? And um, and my parents were very much like she's going on a journey like every kid goes on a journey and we're going to grant her the space and freedom to do that. And I if they had pushed at all, If they had implied at all that this was reflecting poorly on them, if they had brought up one tiny shred of that, I was just looking for a reason to run. And they just never gave it to me. And I try—I felt like I was just kind of baiting them. Like, see, judge me. Shame me. Uh, tell me this reflects poorly on your church. Like, I dare you. And they just wouldn't do it. They just were like, "Wow, you're still you're still on this journey, huh? Uh-huh. You're just taking a long time, huh?" I'm like, "Uh-huh, it really
1: is." Did you make a conscious effort to kind of break from the church for a while, or what?
0: Totally. Um, when I got to college, I went to a small Christian college. I had been so immersed in our church life, in the student ministry, and volunteering there, and and I was church was just so much a part of my life. I I it's like I wanted to see. If there was any truly authentically spiritual part of me separate from the church I had grown up in am I is it like being Italian like you're Italian no matter where you go in the world or is it like this is I could walk away from this could I and um, so I wasn't a part of a church I did not go to chapel I you know drank a lot and smoked cigarettes right in front of the big building where everybody could see you and I had a nose ring You were at a Christian college
1: okay so th- the great
0: thing about it, though, the great thing about a Christian college is, and not everybody has this, but I definitely had it. I had this, like, I need to be bad. Like, yeah. I, I need to know that I can be bad, that I can make my own choices, that I'm not a robot, that I'm not like destined for this same old life or whatever. Um, Like I needed to, I needed to kind of make a mess. And it's really easy to do that at a Christian college, right? All, like all you have to do is smoke, basically. You uh. have to date like one guy who doesn't go to your school and has a convertible, you know? <laughs> um, so my, my little Christian college was an awesome place for me to kind of work that stuff out. I had amazing professors. They were smart and gracious and they helped me so much. And by the time I graduated, I was kind of like, darn it, I think I'm a Christian. I walked as far as I could from everything I had grown up with and then found myself walking right back toward it. Like, oh, darn it. This is actually what I want for my life. This is what I feel deeply in my heart. This is this is not just the way I grew up. This is who I am now. This is the, the way I want to live in this world is with Jesus in a deep relational way. Um, and I was just horrified. by, <laughs> uh-huh. but, you know, I wanted to be so much cooler than that, I think. But my my parents... Rolled with a lot. I got in trouble a lot, and they gave me a lot of space and a lot of patience. And they never broke relationship with me ever, ever, ever. They maintained a really tight connection with me while letting me make a lot of mistakes. And now, as a parent, I can't imagine how difficult that is. Like to watch your child make destructive choices over and over and over again, and just stay super connected with them and never judge them. Um, I think that's probably one of the hardest things you can do. But it gave me the ability to walk my own actual journey and then to return to the church and to Christ and to a life that felt meaningful and connected on my own terms. And I give them
1: great credit for that.
0: I think they're amazing.
1: Was there something in that period that drew you back to the church or was it just the absence of those things? In other words, was it just you and God sort of working things out in the absence of judgment and shame and sort of like people trying to convince you Or was there also like an element of people loving you in certain ways? I mean,
0: I think it was all of the above. I had, um, I worked at a Christian summer camp. I spent eight summers there and I was about to go back for my last summer and I got in trouble. I, uh, you're supposed to sign a contract that says you don't drink all year long. And I signed it every year. And a lot of my friends did. And we never thought twice about it. Um, and then I went back to my college in California and, you know, Drank like you do when you're 19 years old in college, or like I did, I guess. Um, And uh, I I don't totally even know why, but I called my camp director and told him, I can't come back to camp this year. Every year I sign the contract and every year I break it and it never bothers me. And this year, it really bothers me that I've been lying to you about this. And I am so sorry. And I'm going to miss this last summer so much, but I don't want to lie to you anymore. And he said... Can you stop today and not drink from now until the end of camp, this, this, uh, in the end of the summer? And I said, Well, I mean, of course, I mean, of course I can. And he said, Great, because I love you and I care about you and I respect that you told me the truth and I need you. And that was a, I, I still see him, I still talk to him. He's a good friend of mine. And I always tell him, God used you in that moment. Had you said, like, sorry, you're, you know, you're a liar or you're not a good person. or I would have been like, I know, I totally know. And I would have just <laughs> run away. <laughs> yeah. and, and he gave me a second chance when I completely did not deserve it. And I that changed something in my heart. And that was a really important turning point for me.
1: Mm-hmm. In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global
2: perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.
1: you you felt called to hospitality. Once you discovered that, you started acting on it. Was there ever a point where you like felt like maybe this isn't for me? Maybe this is a little too stressful or frustrating?
0: I think the only thing it, I felt is I don't think I would have used the word hospitality for it for many, many years. Yeah. Um, and people always told me, you're a leader, you're a teacher, yeah. you have the gift of creative communication, you you know. Um, Why do you think people told you that? Because those are the good ones, right? You know, uh-huh. like, <laughs> uh-huh. um, uh, and I don't mean I think they're the good ones, but there are certain gifts that we value so much in our culture. Yeah. And and I I am a strong leader in many ways. I have a strong opinion. I have the ability to gather and coalesce people, but I felt a little bit like I was letting people down when I was like, hey guys, I'm not the leadership, teaching, evangelism, creative communication person. Guess what I am? I'm hospitality. I'm like snacks. That's like my jam. Like it, And it matters to me on a spiritual level. Um, When we create environments to to help people feel safe and seen and loved, I think it's every bit as valuable as when we Lead them well or teach them effectively or shepherd them well. Um, so I think there was a part of me that felt a little, it is a gift that's maybe a little bit undervalued and that people think it's such like totally a lady gift, you know? And I, I really want to say like, and I happen to love cooking. So that's like an actually legit part of it. But this is not about food. This is not about recipes. This is not about centerpieces. This is about using your influence, your leadership, your capacity, whatever to create sacred spaces for God to work for people to feel seen and known. And and so I think a lot of what I want to do is really elevate that gift and say, you know, this is not um, after church, we're having goldfish crackers in the church basement. I mean, those are delicious. But if a church doesn't get hospitality right, if the experience of someone coming into a church for the first time doesn't feel wildly welcoming and nurturing and like they're seen and known, then the the teaching doesn't matter the you know whatever programs you have beyond that don't matter the the way we see people and especially in a world that's so divided right now i think hospitality one of the things i've been kind of working on and writing about lately i think hospitality is an antidote to otherness so who i forget who it is probably bob goff says it's almost impossible to hate someone that you've shared a meal with and so i think about that a lot sometimes sermons will change us but sometimes having a dinner uh, around the table of someone who's really different than you, who you really disagree with, changes us even more, and so I'm really passionate about that about what it means to get us as a culture around tables with people who are really different than us. That feels really important to me.
1: are you like formally involved with the hospitality at your local church?
0: uh not formally necessarily
1: okay, okay. No. are you but informally
0: I mean I guess i I host uh you host people. church people in our house all the time, and i and I like that that feels like one of the most important things I do.
1: Yeah. I'm curious though, because you talked, you talked in terms of the local church, people walking into the local church. Like what do you think is like important for local churches to get about hospitality when people are coming in?
0: Well, one of my, one of my dream jobs would be to be, to, to lead the team of people who are like ushers and greeters and, and, and kind of the, the the people at the info desk and all that kind of stuff. And it's really important to me that, um, That those people see themselves, see their role as the same way they would act when they're inviting people into their home for a party. Not uh, like they're a toll booth collector uh, or like telling you you're going the wrong way or you're doing it wrong, right? Um, so it's it's always really important to me. I always watch the way churches train. And and one of my jobs, when I, I worked at a church in Michigan for a while, I oversaw all the people who were kind of ushers and greeters. And we talked a lot about like, this is your living room and you're opening your front door and people don't need to know where to go as much as they need to
1: know that you see them and you'll help them through an experience that feels sort of scary. That's big. It is. That's not an experience I often have when visiting a church. Totally. We moved here about a year and a half ago. And um, the times that we were noticed, right, like that's a big difference. And it's not something that necessarily happens. Like, yeah, we'll be directed, like you said, we'll be shown where to go. Um, But when you ask human questions, um, oftentimes the answers can be very robotic, Um, which I think is like something churches um, often don't get and some churches do and when it when they do i think the the payoff is huge like
0: it it's terrible that i can't remember what church this is i'm like racking my brain for what i don't think it's ours but i think <laughs> it's someone else's but it, i love it uh-huh. um they have a whole volunteer role and it's women usually who are like kind of grandma aged and if your family were to put your son in the children's ministry for the first time, she would connect with you and she would walk you through the whole entire experience. Here's how you sign in and here's where he'll be. And this is what he'll do while he's here. And if you need anything, you can. And, and the whole deal is, you know, there's like a piece of paper that could do that. There's signage that could accomplish ba- that. But they want you. They know that that is one of the most nerve wracking parts of going to a new church. And so, if you can have a human connection, not with a staff member, not with the director of the ministry, but a person whose whole job that Sunday is to make sure you feel like you uh, are being given the information you need to feel confident to leave your child. And that's
1: amazing. It's weird to me that there's not, in in light of this conversation, it's weird to me that there's not a staff member often delegated to this. Like, it seems like hospitality in a lot of churches is an afterthought, Mm -hmm. you know, which is weird.
0: Well, you know, and I love the way... um, I love the way our church does it, and there's a lot of training around it. Yeah. if you're an usher, like that's no joke. It's serious and business. They, but, and they, but they spend a lot of time talking about hospitality and about kindness and about um, the the different needs that people walk in with and the different fears that they walk in with, and it's an it's an important part of how we talk about the tr- the whole church experience. Yeah.
1: Um, in your time doing this sort of work, this hospitality work, and whether through writing or speaking or hosting people what would you say is the biggest struggle that you've had
0: i think uh in hospitality and in lots of other areas in life there is a tendency toward um perfectionism and not doing it until you feel like things are perfect right so i talk to people all the time who are like i would love to have people over but my kitchen's not big enough I would love to have people over, but um, I don't know how to cook. I would love to have people over, but I live in a dorm room. I would love whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, I feel a lot of times like I would love to have people over, but it's just so messy. I would love to have people over, but um, whatever. And I think the impulse toward hospitality is is one that we should follow. And and I think perfection, you know, there's this kind of, even they call it like the hospitality industry. And that's like, if you work at a hotel, you work in the hospitality industry. And I, and then there's, you know, now there's shows about it and there's whole stores. And there's this idea that in order to have people over for dinner, you have to have like one of everything from Williams Sonoma (laughs) and like a culinary degree, right? And a restaurant grade kitchen. I think literally, I think you could go home on the way home from work, you could stop at a gas station and you could get whatever kind of snacks they have and you could open your front door and you could call a couple people and they would be delighted to be received into someone else's home. You know, so I think it's so much less about how perfect our spaces are, how perfect our food is, how perfect or not perfect our kids are. I think people are dying to not eat dinner alone in front of the TV. And so I think we serve the most ridiculous. I mean, we serve a whole lot of frozen pizza. Um we serve takeout from all different kinds of places. I do cheese and crackers as a meal absolutely constantly. Our house is never perfectly clean. So we have two little boys. They're always around and there's always like a Lego where you're supposed to sit down. Um, And I, I force myself to keep practicing it as a discipline, not as a performance.
1: Okay. So here's something I've been thinking about. Yes. You live here in the Midwest. Have mm-hmm. you always lived in the Midwest? Uh, I lived in California for college. Okay. I just want to know your opinion. Do you think, do you really think people crave that sort of thing everywhere? Because I feel like, um, Well, I mean, you're from the Midwest, so that seems to be your experience in the Midwest. And if anywhere, that would be the place, in my opinion, where people don't want to just randomly be invited into someone's house. Oh, really? The biggest complaint I have about living in the Midwest is you need things. You need events to get together with people. Interesting. The thing I've noticed is like people have regular established events where they get together with people, and otherwise it's strange.
0: You mean like uh, there? Someone's graduating, or someone's birthday? We're having
1: a party for this reason, oh, or okay. we're doing this for this reason, and um, or we're we bowl every like. There's a lot of like we bowl every Wednesday okay, or whatever. Okay. Um, this is a f- coming from a person from the south, so yeah, maybe where are you it's from? just. A, so I'm originally from Alabama, okay, and I spent eight years in Louisville, okay, yeah. And in both of those cases, there was a and now like, admittedly, some of that was college. Mm-hmm. Some of that was I don't know. I mean. Four years of that was college, whatever. And then in Louisville, it was seminary experience. So that was probably a a little closer knit. But in general, like my experience in the Midwest is that it is maybe it's the suburban Mm -hmm. atmosphere is like everyone's off in another town. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. All your friends are off in another town. And so it becomes an ordeal. Yeah. To go to someone's house.
0: Well, and I will say, I mean, certainly. Southern culture is so much better at hospitality. Uh I love it. I, I, that's, have you
1: spent time in the South?
0: I mean, a little bit. Um, uh, and I love it. I love, I love Southern hospitality. Um, and I love that people gather around food and food traditions. Um, I think I think the southern part of the country, I think you all have the best hospitality, the best food, and the best literature. You mean y'all have? No, I can't say it. I just sound ridiculous. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't even try. Okay.
1: I agree with, especially with the literature.
0: Absolutely. I'm
1: tangentially related to Harper Lee. Stop it. My son, whose name is Atticus. Yeah, I got that. Has a signed, I'm just going to brag. Do it. This podcast is about me anyway. I'm just kidding. Totally. is about, um, so he has a signed copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. No. Which I can't believe.
0: That's amazing. We got it like
1: a year before she died.
0: Uh uh-uh. That is unbelievable. From my mom. I love that. I would also say Chicago is a big restaurant town. So like when I, even when I was growing up and in my twenties, we were um if you were gonna have a shower, even a baby shower or a wedding shower, an engagement party, you would get uh, you'd meet at a restaurant. Yeah. Or if you were going out with a bunch of couples, you'd make a reservation at a restaurant. You'd, I um and then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and people just had each other over for dinner large groups of people and they made all the food and I was like what promised land is this uh-huh. yeah. uh, and it was just amazing and I loved it and it didn't have to be for an occasion yeah. And it didn't have to be fancy and everyone would bring stuff and they would like make real food yeah. like I, t- I did not know how to cook until I went to Grand Rapids and my friends taught me how and they gave me a vision for hospitality that has stayed with me in a really compelling way
1: so you don't feel so you, yeah on the hierarchy of gifts you're cool with Well, you're cool with hospitality.
0: Well, it just feels right, right? You know, it feels accurate. And um, I'm not a particularly ambitious person. I'm not going to write a book every year. I'm not going to do 50 cities speaking tour. I'm not going to – I don't want to live that way. I want to have people in our home for meaningful experiences – about three times a week yeah and that feels valuable to me
1: that sounds awesome
0: um and 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 it feels disproportionately valuable to me and that's i think how i know it's a calling right right right. like there are some things i do that i think other people i think other people think are quite important and i'm like eh but we had this dinner party (laughs) you know really it Uh matters to me It, it feels to me like a sacred opportunity
1: how has embracing this work changed you over time
0: it's helped me reframe my professional choices So, um, you know, one of the tricky things about being a writer is you have to travel and speak a certain amount. Um, But I guard that. uh, I travel in a very, very limited way Mm -hmm. because being home and using my home to gather people feels like my calling, maybe even more so than some of those speaking events. It's
1: like more rewarding to you than speaking to a large audience somewhere. Mm -hmm.
0: It is. Um, And so I do those things because they're a part of my job, but I'm slowing down my publishing schedule. I'm trying to make essentially the professional part of my life smaller so that I have more space to practice a a really kind of robust, meaningful rhythm of hospitality.
1: But it does seem like you've thought about how to carry out your professional life in a way that emphasizes these values. So can you talk about what it means to write and speak in a way that is hospitable?
0: Well, I mean, I'm sure you know this as a communicator. Whenever there's a choice to help to make me look better or make someone feel more like they understand me and connect with me, I always pick B. You can tell with writers, right, when they just like drop in little things, they're like, then I went to my graduation where I was summa cum laude. And you're Mm -hmm. like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Like that, the story could have held together without that, right? And so I very intentionally, like I will throw myself under the bus anytime Mm -hmm. if it helps people feel more connected and more seen. And like, they're not crazy. And some of that is because that's what books did for me when I was growing up. So much of my spiritual journey was reading, especially like faith memoirs. And I, I felt so connect when someone showed me the messy inside of their faith journey, I felt so connected to them. And so as a writer, um, I'm not showing off ever. I'm always showing you the dustiest, dirtiest part of myself so that you don't feel like that part of your life is wrong for being there.
1: Do you have a favorite faith memoir?
0: I mean, Anne Lamott's Traveling Mercies came out the year after I graduated from college. And... Um, you know, she was she still is obviously in California. But um, when I was in college there, we would go hear her do readings in our town like several times. So we were quite familiar with her. We had read all of her fiction. We were just ma- major fans. And then all of a sudden she wrote this book about faith. And it was like our little minds just exploded <laughs> to someone that we revered yeah. sheerly as a writer. All of a sudden was talking about our faith tradition in a way that was so beautiful and inspiring, which blew our minds. But I also I went to a public high school in Barrington, and they do, um, for senior English, they do an AP class called Religious Quest. And it, you read from all the different faith, uh, all the different religions. And so I read Tolstoy's Confessions, and Herman Hess, and Chesterton's Orthodoxy is a forever, like I read that every year. That really started a journey for me of reading spiritual memoirs widely, and those really helped me along the way.
1: What would you say is the deepest fear you have when it comes to living this calling out?
0: That I will bend to the pressure to work more in ways that other people value more instead of stewarding this gift in the way that I know
1: it deserves to be stewarded. How do people expect you to work this out? Well,
0: I mean, a publisher, for example, would like for me to write a book every 18 months and then travel 50 times a year, whatever, you know, and... Um,
1: a lot of people would really like that app- opportunity.
0: I know. I know they would. Yeah. Um, and that's part of why I did it for so long. Yeah. Because I felt it's a tremendous sense of gratitude, even though I knew it did not feel, it felt like wearing somebody else's shoes. You what know? did that
1: do to your life?
0: Well, that's the whole journey of Present Over Perfect. It got me really far from the person I wanted to be and the person I think God made me to be. And it pushed me into being a very efficient, capable, multitasking, deadline meeting, kind of hard edged person. And it edged out the silly, warm, whimsical, playful, hospitality oriented person that ultimately I really want to be. And so the Present Over Perfect is a journey back to that person. And a lot of it, I had, I mean, I had to say to my publisher, like, get ready. I'm about to really disappoint you. <laughs> like, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to slow down all my deadlines. I'm going to put some real serious boundaries in place. Um, my work life became, it, it eclipsed a lot of the other parts of my life. And I didn't want to
1: live that way anymore. If you could get into a time machine, mm-hmm. go back in time and talk to your younger self, what would you tell her? How young? Uh, as young as you want. Okay. It's totally up to you. Um... It could be you like an hour ago and just say, Turn around. <laughs> don't go into this interview. Stop
0: telling college stories. <laughs> um, you know, and actually I this is something I've I've thought about a lot and, and written about a lot because essentially I feel like I lost some of my essential self along the way, and a lot of this most recent journey is recovering her. And so I would have said, hold strongly to the things that you really love, even if no one else cares about those things. Pay attention to what makes your heart beat faster, to what you love in such like just a weird, tender way, even if the obvious signs are pointing in the opposite direction. The obvious signs were if someone asks you to speak, you say yes. You jump (laughs) up on a stage and you do it as often as anybody lets you. You publish as fast as you can. You strike while the iron's hot. You build, build, build. You, you know.
1: Take opportunities. Yeah.
0: Someone said to me, well, you know, I realize you're running an empire. And I was like, I don't don't even have an assistant. I'm not running anything. Um, But I think there's this perception that faster is better, that more is better, that we should always be scaling things as quickly and as aggressively as possible. And I don't think that's how I was made. Uh, I don't think that's my best self. I think my best self is a little more playful, is more relational, is really oriented toward nature, loves food and music and the senses, and and frankly, I would love to cheer on a million other people doing that bigger, better, faster thing, and I, I would I would support them and buy their books and go to hear them speak, and then I want them to come over for dinner at my house, and I will make them feel. Safe and secure and seen and loved, and I will feel a deep sense of gladness when I do that. That I don't feel when I'm the one on the stage.
1: You've been listening to The Calling. Shauna Niequist is the author of Present Over Perfect. You can follow her on Twitter at S. Nikos, that's S-N-I-E Q-U-I-S-T remember to rate and review the show on iTunes it helps us a lot The Calling is produced by Cray Allred theme music by Lee Rosevere used under Creative Commons 4.0 see you next week